Is Gaga a character? Well, you know that I'm not like the Countess because you know me in real life, you know? But I guess the thing is, is that what I am as Gaga really is, at this moment, what other people think Gaga is. Well, you know that I'm not like the Countess. I'm not like the Countess because you know me in real life. It's not necessarily what I am uh, entirely because even if I feel like Gaga, you know, uh, meaning this stronger uh, individual person of myself that I discovered being young in New York, I started to call myself Gaga after people called me Gaga, and it was the sort of nickname that I had for me at my best. But it's a bit of a creation, though, on some it level. It is a bit of a creation, but I think actually at this point now, it's other people that have created through what I mm -hmm. have made, mm -hmm. their perception of what Gaga is as a separate entity from me. Oh my gosh, Alex Jones is fake. He says he's an actor. Look, he was in Scanner Darkly and he was in Waking Life. And our great writers and researchers, are they actors? Are they fakes? Do I screen them before they come on air? Do we tell guests what they can talk about? No, everybody else does, not us. We don't do pre-interviews. Ask anybody. We're the most bonafide, hardcore, real McCoy thing there is. And everybody knows it and we're delivering the goods. Before we get into some other topics, we, we, we announced you were going to be here. We got a multitude of blogs and websites dedicated to saying you're a fraud. There are a variety of theories regarding your identity, many claiming that you're no longer the same Andrew W.K. that somehow in the middle of the year uh, 2005, the original Andrew W.K. went somewhere, and a new Andrew W.K., that you're not the same person you were. How do you respond to all of this, which is a mystery to me? This which is a mystery to me. Before we get into some other topics, we announced you were going to be here. We got a multitude of blogs and websites dedicated to saying, you're a fraud. There are a variety of theories regarding your identity, many claiming that you're no longer the same Andrew W.K. that somehow in the middle of the year uh, 2005, the original Andrew W.K. went somewhere, and a new Andrew W.K., that you're not the same person you were. How do you respond to all of this, which is a mystery to me? Well, I was, well, I guess I'm always dreading someone asking about this, and uh, especially someone of your stature, but I'm glad in a way as well. Uh, I think these sorts of things, first of all, to anyone who's not familiar with me, why does it even matter? It, 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 and it really doesn't, even if you are familiar with me, because what I hope people take away from me doesn't have to do with whether I even exist or not. What I hope people take away from me doesn't have to do with whether I even exist or not. For example, this is how I've thought about it to try to make myself feel better about these accusations. This is how I've thought about it to try to make myself feel better about these accusations. 
If you don't believe that Santa Claus exists, it doesn't mean that the joy that you would receive from the idea of Santa is any less valid. But how did all this start? Why did they think that you are not the original you? For better or worse, there, some of this is based on some bits of truth or facts, rather. Some of this is based on bits of truth or facts, rather, and just in, in terms of... Well, I've said some things that have, would lead people to these sorts of conclusions that I'm not proud of, having said, and decisions that I've made who to work with. So you created part of the problem. I added to it at one point, thinking that sort of by accepting it, it would deflect it. I like this actually these. helps your persona, doesn't it? <laughs> No, well, wait a minute. This I is think, a good uh, gimmick. Well, that's very kind of you to, to interpret think it that Think about this. You create an aura that people even think you're not the... That's a great gimmick. Well, that's... So I've that's got what, it. Whatever way you want to take it, you that makes it. you think that that's I'm That's your cool. party. If I've impressed you, then I have succeeded at something. I'm told to ask you, I have no idea what this means, who is Steve Mike? That is the name of a group of people that helped me in my early stages, and I still work with some of them. They're a group? Yes, they, they go by a collective name. Steve Mike. Sounds like one person. It does, and it's a very bizarre and maybe a bit clumsy of a name, but this was their choice. And there are numerous fan pages saying you're a member of organizations like Illuminati, the Italian, the Freemasons, the Church of Scientology. Any of that true? I am not a member of any of those formally, no. I am not a member of any of those formally, no. I am not a member of any of those formally, no. How difficult was it over a period of nine years to maintain that character, to stay in character? Oh, uh, most difficult actually when I was talking to guests whose subjects I was really interested in because he, he's willfully ignorant. He's not just ignorant, he's willfully ignorant. because he knows that willful ignorance allows you to win arguments you otherwise wouldn't because you can be selective about your own facts and still be honest with yourself. He's not malicious. He was well-intentioned. And it was hardest to maintain that, that, that sense of ignorance or to maintain that foolish behavior in the face of people whose subject I really enjoyed, like my friend Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, Father Jim Martin, um, because if I really liked their subject, it would be hard to, it would be hard to maintain my, my, my game of embodying common ignorances uh, because I wanted to engage them on their subject in, a, in, a, in an honest and, and passionate way, uh, but that wasn't my job. My job was actually to really allow them to dispel common ignorances about their subject by, by, being, by, by standing them up. Uh, for my guests so they could knock them down. And the only time that I was frustrated by that really is when my guests wouldn't 
realize I was doing it, <laughs> and they would let me win. I didn't want to win. I wanted my guest to win, yeah. but sometimes the, I guess the force of the personality of the character I was playing would steamroll them. So I, I'm sorry. It's over now. Um, now, I heard that, uh, that you were leaving uh, acting, and I said to myself, that's too bad, because uh, you're great. Uh, and, you know, not just me, the two-time Academy Award nominations. W Walk the Line, you were tremendous in Walk the Line. So here, here's my hope that after some time off, uh, and I think you're taking a little time off tonight, uh, I, I'm hopeful that you will reconsider and, and come back to acting because you're just, you know, nobody really better than you are. Oh, Thank you. Never say never, right? I don't. I don't know. Don't, you don't know what? I don't know. If I, I don't know what'll happen. But you, you are. Uh, you're not going to act anymore. No. Huh? Why is that? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so you, you have given it some thought. Yeah, it's not really a, an easy thing to, to explain. It's something that's been part of my life for a long time, do you know? And so it's weird to like come out and stage a bunch of people and just talk about it, um, mm -hmm. do you know? So. Yeah. Are you all right? What happened to your thumb? To my thumb? Yeah. Oh, it's just a little cuticle mishap. Um, Joaquin, what will you, uh, what will you do now? Um, well, I've been working on my music. M music? But you know, I, when I saw you in, in uh, Walk the Line, I said, this guy is tremendous. He's, he's singing, and it sounded great. So is that the kind of music you're interested in? No, no, I, I do um, more hip-hop music. Hip-hop music. Um, is this a joke? <laughs> what do you have them on? We basically show up in two different arenas. Uh, we have the medical device arena that utilizes the product for uh, validation and origination. So they'd use a product like ours to be able to tighten their parameters uh, and produce based on uh, a validation against an actual you know, tissue uh, simulant. So this type of validation was previously done uh, often with animal tissues. They would take you know, porcine tissue uh, and do a test mechanically for the nature of the way that the device interacts with it. So we have the whole field uh, of medical device where we have products from laminated tissues like skin, uh, skin fat and muscle, fascia planes, uh, you know, muscular bodies, uh, and luminal structures like vessels. Uh, and those can be used to validate the devices. The other part of the business is actually the simulation side, uh, which is where we you know, produce these devices to be able to be used in medical education. And they can be used from anything uh, as, you know, as uh, 
as simple as, you know, just kind of the patient placement side where you would want to know how to position the body itself, what to do, where it needs to go, how to access it, which is just like the initial thing, early stage students in medical programs uh, or emergency programs, nursing programs, tech programs, anything where they're going to do patient interaction uh, and, you know, patient procedures. As, as far uh, or as deep uh, of a scope of knowledge as, you know, neurosurgery, things where you have, you know, complex uh, neurovascular structures you would be trying to approach surgically with, uh, you know, uh, microsurgical tools uh, or a microsurgical robot. Uh, so in this case, the product itself is actually a, you know, a full-fledged um, simulator for just about everything you would want to do medically. In Russia as well as in the West, research has been underway for many years in biological synthesis that is, artificial life forms. And according to high intelligence, a stunning breakthrough took place in Russia some years ago. The Russians refer to this breakthrough as a providential discovery, something they learned almost by accident. They discovered the key to creating what are known as organic robotoids. An organic robotoid is an artificial robot-like creature. It looks and acts exactly like a human being, and yet it is not human. A robotoid is alive in the biological sense, but it is an artificial life form. Robotoids respond to conventional routine medical tests in the same way as humans do. They eat, they drink, they breathe, they bleed if cut, and they can be killed. Robotoids can also think, but they think only in the sense that a computer thinks. Like any other computer, the brain of a robotoid has to be programmed for each assignment it is given. Do you like talking with me? Yes. Talking to people is my primary function. But unlike many electronic computers, the biological computer brain of a robotoid possesses an enormous memory. As a result, robotoids can be programmed to communicate and think in such complex patterns that they act human. Hiroshi Ishiguro has invented the world's most lifelike android. My goal is to understand what is a human, so that is the reason why I'm building a very human-like robot. He calls his invention a geminoid, after the Latin word for twin. She can smile, blink, nod, even talk. Organic robotoids are remarkable creatures, but they have many drawbacks. They don't grow or reproduce, but must be manufactured one by one in the desired form. They also have a very limited lifespan, measured in months or even weeks depending upon how they are utilized. This is due to the fact that their metabolism, while it resembles that of humans, is very inefficient. A robotoid can be manufactured on very short notice, a matter of hours. But after a few weeks or months, it suddenly begins to degenerate physically and mentally. When that takes place, the robotoid has to be removed from service and disposed of. To extend its useful life as much as possible, a robotoid is customarily cooled down to slow its metabolism between assignments. Organic robotoids are extremely expensive, troublesome creatures to produce and utilize, and robotoid capabilities do not exceed those of human beings. All they can really do is simulate human beings. But my friends, 
For intelligence purposes, that's all they have to do. So what is your name? To produce an organic robotoid, it is necessary to have a pattern to go by. The pattern required is that of genetic coding taken from a few cells from the body of a human being. In this respect, the Russian technique sounds like cloning, but the technique itself is totally unrelated to genuine cloning. A robotoid is produced within a matter of hours, and it simulates the human donor at his current age. Like any man-made copy of anything, a robotoid is never a perfect copy of the human that is to be simulated. There's always small discrepancies in appearance and behavior. It's an artificial life form like an animal in some ways, but like a computerized machine in others. Every Russian robotoid has what is called a holographic brain. This brain duplicates essentially the entire memory of a person being copied. The key to doing this is a new technique called an ultrasonic cerebral hologram. Using high-frequency sound waves, which are inaudible, a complete three-dimensional picture is made of a person's brain. This is a painless, non-destructive process, and under the proper conditions it can be done without the person even being aware of it. Last month I revealed that the Russians are using Nelson Rockefeller's hit list to weed out Bolsheviks here in America, and for roughly three years they have been preparing for this day. They have been secretly making cerebral holograms of the people on the list at every opportunity. This has been done to every person on Rockefeller's list who has visited Russia or Eastern Europe in the past three years. When an organic robotoid is made to simulate, for example, our late President Jimmy Carter, two major factors are involved. One is the genetic coding required to simulate Carter's appearance, voice, fingerprints, and so on. The other is a holographic image of Carter's brain. This image is a complete record of the neuron patterns which existed in Carter's brain at the moment the hologram was made. Therefore, it contains all of the memory and knowledge Carter had up to that moment. When a Carter robotoid is made, the biological computer in its head is caused to form according to the holographic record of Carter's brain. However, certain portions of the robotoid computer are caused to deviate from the holographic record. Uh, the end result is a biological computer which has to be programmed but which contains essentially all of Carter's memory, involuntary mannerisms, and the like. As a result, a Carter robotoid will automatically do certain kinds of things without the need for specific programming. For example, a Carter robotoid will seem to recognize old friends. That's because the computer memory of the robotoid reproduces Carter's memory of that friend. The holographic process puts it there automatically without the Russian programmers even having to know it's there. Organic robotoids are such amazing creatures that they are still a subject of questioning and debate. 
This is true even among the Russian scientists who made them a reality. For example, robotoids seem to have no true instinct for self-preservation. In this regard, they act like machines, simply doing as they are told to do. By contrast, both humans and animals generally have the instinct for self-preservation. Robotoids can be programmed for self-preservation, but they are equally willing, if willing is the word, to perform suicide missions. Exploratory one-way trips into space are only one example of this. If a space mission looks too dangerous to risk the life of an experienced cosmonaut, a Robotoid can now be used. The Robotoid copy of the Cosmonaut is already trained the moment it's made thanks to its holographic memory. Organic Robotoids look and act so much like human beings that it's hard for us to get used to the idea that they are not human. Later, the President was driven into Camp David, and Mrs. Carter was rushed there from the finish line. But two hours later, saying he had had to be dragged off the course, the President showed up to present the trophy to race winner Herb Lindsay. The first was Geminoid Ishiguro. Yes, the scientist made his own mirror image. One, two, three, robot. It's a twin brother or something. It, you know, he's not myself. Different person. This is my house. 
we headed to the Mariah Khan Museum. Robots on display there are intended as a study to see how humans interact with humanoid robots. With their silicon skin and artificial limbs that were molded from real humans, these remote-controlled robots bear the closest resemblance to real-life people of any machine at the moment. So the idea of this robot is that it takes in news from all over the world and just transmits it. You instinctively think that you're in the room with another human being. Just by the features and the, the skin is so accurate. Strange. So what have you done today, Lucille? Got hugs, loads of hugs. Lots of hugs. You're Next. holding me funny, I can't quite move my head properly. Oh, no. Oh, that's better. <laughs> if the whole point of it is to replicate sort of human emotion and help people get closer to other people, then I'm just not sure if this is the best way to go about it. So you're an autonoroid. What is an autonoroid? So autonoroid is human look like android. Tell me, how old are you? Oh, are you asking my old? I'm asking... It's a secret. It's a secret? Yes. What are you doing with your lips? The Hennar Hotel roughly translates into Weird Hotel, but would that describe the human experience of a place almost exclusively run by robots? Reminds me of going to the supermarket and having to check in, check out there, which I struggle with as much as I seem to be struggling with this, but it's persevere. Do you wish to use facial recognition for entrance? I do. Okay, so you put your card there. Please confirm it. Hold the card over the toilet reader and register your face. Check-in is all finished. Enjoy your comfortable stay. I will enjoy my comfortable stay. Thank you, robot. It'd be quite good if you could ride on it. It's obviously not a quicker way of getting your bag to the room. And we're here. You can sort of see what people mean about kind of robots having personalities. Bye, robot. Thanks for your help. <laughs> OK, so we're going to see if the facial recognition key system works. <gasps> That's so clever. That is clever. I'm very impressed by that. Oh, wow. <laughs> to a little set of instructions. OK, we'll ask him to turn the lights off. Julie Chan. Akari Keshite. Akari And the lights are off.
that. And I don't believe in God. Operating for profit on Greendale's campus must be at least 51% owned by a registered Greendale student. That's too bad, Dean. I don't recall seeing Subway in my premenopausal post-feminist experiential marketing class. Actually, I'm on the wait list for the pre-men post-fem X mark. Who are you? Gang, meet Greendale's newest student, Subway. Your name is Subway. Yep. Using a groundbreaking but surprisingly legal process known as corpo-humanization, real people such as myself are now allowed to represent the collective humanity of business owners. I have contractually waived my birth identity and am now a man and student named Subway. I don't believe this. Come on, Subway, there is no way you're 5'10". So you can vote? Actually, no, because technically I'm only a week old. Aww. But please don't think of me as any less human than yourselves. I'm here to hang out, take weird classes, and party as hardy as my morality clause allows. Eat fresh? Eat fresh? Eat fresh. That's my man. Hello. Um, we're the Simonses from next door. I'm Summer, and this is my husband, Larry. Hey, neighbors. I just wanted to bring you this welcome gift of various samples from the new Robustion Aphrodite line of beauty products. <laughs> but I'm sure you're in no mood for guests. No, don't come, be silly. Come, come, come on come in. in. I'm Steve Jones. Hi. Yeah. Oh, nice to meet you. Steve. Uh, Larry Simons. Hey, nice Larry, to meet you. Come on in. This is Jen and Mick, and I'm Kate. Hello. Hi, Mick. Hey, nice to meet you. So Hi. nice to meet you. You too. Uh, do you have kids? Because they should come over and meet Mick and Jen. Nah, actually, we don't. Uh, I was, uh, oh, I wasn't right. Um, I know that with a big move in conduction with a woman's naturally fluctuating hormones, it can leave your skin a wreck. But you'll find that the Aphrodite line of beauty products can really give you a glow. Well, I bet. Look at you. You're a vision of beauty. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Larry? Want to grab a cold one? Come on. Okay. Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. Come on in. Well, would you like a tour? Sure. These rooms are divine. Thank you. You should come over at our house and we can talk decor. Oh, I would love that. Boy, I'm very impassionate about interiors myself. So, what line of work is your husband in? Well, you know, he does a little of this and a little of that, and mostly he works on keeping me happy. Wow. Oh, you're right. This is really a good beer. I told you that would hit the spot. Uh, no, you know, I haven't really met anybody, so... Oh. 
can play with me. I'm paired up with a couple of guys, but uh, there's room for a fourth. I wouldn't want to impose on you. Don't be silly. You can ride with me. Really? Thanks, Larry. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Clean living. Yeah. Nice shot. Thank you. Have you seen these new MP52 irons? I don't believe I have. They have a lower, deeper center of gravity, so they're more forgiving. Really? Yes, and if they'll forgive me, <laughs> they'll forgive anyone. Very nice. Excuse me. Or Mr. Jones. Steve's fine. No broken soul. then. I'm sure you're all eager to hear your results from our first month of sales. Let's start with Steve. Total sales in this first month, up three and a half percent. Booyah! All right. Here are a few highlights. Sporting goods, four percent increase. Watches, up two percent. Golf-related merchandise, three percent. Nice. Okay, Mick. Overall sales up 16%. Yes. Video games up 13. Whoa. Sportswear's up 21. Cool. 
excellent way to open up the market, Mick. Good work. And Jen, up 14% overall. Solid work, my dear. Good. Hey, go to Dan. Kate, congratulations on being our top producer. Thank you. Up 20%. Wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. us to something called undercover marketing marketing by masquerade stealth marketing let me give you a definition a quick definition of stealth marketing stealth marketing is marketing to people when they don't even realize that they're being marketed to it's kind of that real somewhere in downtown new york a secret plan is being hatched it's got to be totally totally under the radar you're gonna have fun with this they've been assembled by a company called essential reality which has launched a new product called the P5 Glove, a cutting-edge device that video gamers can use to fly planes and fire weapons on their computers with a twitch of a finger. And we're going to go into coffee bars and crowded places. Your job is to go out there and have fun with it and, and say, yeah, sure, come on, you want to try it? Great, try And all of a sudden, you just involve them with the brand. And then feed them a few sound bites along the way. Hey, you're in there. It's like, look at this. It's like you're in the game. It's like you're in the game, that's a good soundbite. Inside a nearby Starbucks, Theo and Kumani could be any of a million twenty-somethings hanging out, obsessed with their new toy. Not pitching anything, just waiting for someone to approach them. And so were we with an undercover camera. It works well? It works really well. Try it on for a couple of minutes, in like a minute, you'll, you'll see this thing just, right, just moves fluidly. Bingo, Mr. Curious plays right into Theo's hands. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you want, y'all? I can, I can email you the information about it. The oh, fish cool. just keep taking the bait. This is so cool. You know, I have some information that yeah. I can email you. Let's do it. Okay. Give me about name. this. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is great. Above all, they never let on they're on the job. It's like you're actually moving inside the game. It's like you're moving inside the game. No one is overtly trying to sell you anything, only trying to get you to want it. And then, of course, buy it and tell your friends about it. It's only going to get lighter, you know what I'm saying? Not soft sell or hard sell, secret sell. Go ahead, get this guy in the business suit. Excuse me. Could you, would you mind taking a picture of me and my boyfriend? When Sony Ericsson wanted to promote its hot new gadget, a cell phone that yeah. takes pictures, beyond conventional advertising, they launched an undercover campaign called Fake Tourists. Excuse me, ladies. Sorry to bother you. Sixty to actors took to the streets of ten cities, irresistibly innocent-looking, seeking a small favor. Excuse me. Am I taking a picture of us? Thank Thanks you. a lot, man. It's cool, right? The undercover operation was the brainchild of Sony Ericsson's director of marketing, John Marin. That was an easy way to create a, a very non-evasive, interesting conversation with somebody without the pressure of it feeling like this is a pitch. Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote about such things in his book, The Tipping Point, thinks undercover marketing is a bit of a con game. Well, there's an element, obviously, of deception involved that I don't think um, is the case in um, conventional advertising. I mean, conventional advertising is about trying to charm us or trying to persuade us, but it's not usually about trying to trick us. 
Um, and it's the trickery part, I think, that makes this different. A line is crossed, I think, when you go outside of those normal boundaries and start to deceive people in ways that they are, uh, where they are um, uh, totally unwitting to what's going on. Critics of this kind of advertising would say there's something slightly subversive about it, about it, it's conning people, it's a question of ethics. The majority of the people that we polled found it interesting, fun, and innovative. They didn't find it at all, to use your words, deceptive or subversive. I mean, it was simply that they enjoyed a new way to see a cool new product. Cool new products are the lifeblood of undercover marketing. And these are the kinds of cool people the marketers want to get to. Want to get them to not just buy, but get them talking about a product. Word of mouth, buzz, the least expensive, most effective form of advertising. But can buzz be manufactured? Part of what makes real word of mouth so powerful is the understanding we have from that the person telling us about it is telling us about it for disinterested reasons. They're not being paid by somebody. They have our interests at heart. That is worlds apart from a situation where the person telling us something is telling us that because they have some private agenda. They're getting paid. They're being planned. But my problem with undercover marketing is not what happens in the moment. It's what happens a week or two weeks or a month down the road when we discover we've been duped. And I think that the moment when we discover we've been duped causes a backlash. Companies who engage in this practice are courting that backlash, and that's a very, very dangerous thing to play with. After the stealth campaign at Starbucks, we tracked down some of the people lured into using the computer glove. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm marketed to like 24 hours a day. But some felt it was untruth in advertising. John Flaherty didn't like being taken. It just seemed to be like a nice, friendly encounter and uh, kind of restores your faith in, in your fellow New Yorkers and then to find out it was all fake. It's just kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't, like, I don't like the ring of it. Undercover is where you'd expect to find cigarettes and smokers these days. But there's a whole host of wholesome household names stalking you. Sure. I mean, some of the clients that I can't speak about because of the contracts that we have with them uh, that talk about the fact that, you know, this kind of marketing needs to stay undercover. And they pay us a lot of money to keep it that way. Do you like it? Undercover marketing hasn't eclipsed the old-fashioned kind, but it's growing. It's good, right? And if you think you haven't run into an undercover marketer yet, well, that's the point. I could give you a day in the life of a person who might be the target of undercover marketing, and I will tell you that some of these things are happening right now around you. So you walk out of your building in the morning, some city, and you walk by the door and you say, hey, good morning, and you notice there's a bunch of boxes at his feet from some online or mail order retailer, and there's a bunch of boxes there with, of course, a big brand message on it. You walk out, and well, a lot of people must be ordering from that company. Well, what you don't know is that we paid the doorman to keep those empty boxes there. You walk out into the street, and you hear some people having kind of a loud conversation about a, uh, a musical act. And they're kind of passing the headphones back and forth. They go, wow, this is great. Hey, do you know that, that I heard the CD is really hard to find, but I heard they sell it at Store X. Right, you hear that and you register it and you know you might kind of pick up on that and maybe later on you'll think hey I wonder what the hot act is bang that might be in your head now you 
get into your office and there's a certain brand of water in the refrigerator. What is that? You take it out, you drink it, you slug it down, it's there, not, not really thinking about it. Wow, that's pretty good water. Who knows? Maybe someone placed the water there. You kind of go out for your lunch break, you're sitting in the park, and people are kind of out there talking in the park, and bang, all of a sudden you see another message. By the time you go to bed, you've probably received eight or nine different undercover messages. People are always thinking, well, oh, I know product placement. That's when they put stuff in movies. Well, yes, kind of. I mean, that's definitely traditional product placement, but real-life product placement is just that, placing stuff in movies, but the movie is actually your life. We'll take a group of attainable, uh, but still aspirational people. They're not supermodels. They're kind of people just like you. They're doing something for us, whether they're having a certain kind of drink or they're using a certain laundry detergent, whatever it may be. They're the, they are kind of the, the roach motel, if you will. People are gonna come over to them and they're gonna give them this little piece of brand bait. Could be a sound bite of knowledge or a ritual. Consumers would get that piece of roach bait and then they would take it, they go, oh, pretty cool. And then they go out and they spread it to their friends. If you wanna be critical, if you wanna go through your life like that, sure, be critical of every single person that walks up to you. But if they're showing you something that fits and something that works and something that makes your life better in some way, well then, who cares? We, again, just say thanks. Just say thanks. Just say thanks.